Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Supper uh, next weekend, part of our worship. And then another one is, um, you know, as we're getting closer, God willing, um, to when we're going to be um, joining both services in the new building and things, I'm going to try to uh, bring it up a little bit more, just remind us of it to keep it fresh on our minds to be praying for and such. Um, I I brought along with me just a little scrap of paper that I uh, jotted down a a list of prayer requests um, right when, I I think this is three or four years ago, Right when we as a church bought the land, voted that we were going to move forward on this project, we were going to pursue this. We set a couple financial goals. The financial goals seemed impossible. The whole thing seemed daunting. And so I I wrote down just a, a list of prayer requests there, started to pray through them occasionally, shared it with some others and others would pray. And as I go back and I look at it now, um, it's incredibly encouraging of just how many of them God answered and not only answered, but how specifically, you know, there were times we asked for just some really specific things and he answered in just really gracious ways. You know, I, I wrote on here things like that, you know, that we would, we would maintain unity, that this would not be a stumbling block to the fellowship of the church. I, I wrote down things like that God would give us wisdom. You know, those are the things that God tells us. You pray for wisdom, you ask for it rightly, he will give. But there are other things I wrote down here. They're not guaranteed. Um, I, I ask, I wrote down here that God would so abundantly provide that we would not have to wait long um, before we began, that we wouldn't grow discouraged in the process. Uh, legitimately, when we started off, in my mind, I was thinking six or seven years it would take before we saved up that amount of money. Uh, God provided in 13 months uh, that that amount just just blew us away. And then just consistently, as I look through these things, he's just very specifically answered. And that, that's, it encourages me. There are a few more that I've, I've jotted down here recently that I just wanted to share with you and see if maybe you'd be willing to jot down, make it a part of your praying. When you pray for your church family, this is not your top priority, okay? It's not the, not the number one thing you ought to pray for. But if we're gonna do it for the glory of God, and that is our desire, then there are a couple things. Number one, if you're gonna do a building project to the glory of God, you can't obsess over it. But number two, if we're gonna do it, we gotta do it well. We gotta do it with excellence. We gotta do it in a way that matches uh, the, the, an effort that is excellent. And so here are, here are a few more requests that I'm praying and I, and I ask if you'd be willing to pray these or something similar. Um, again, things that God doesn't have to do. I've prayed that by the time that we take the final loan that it'll be below 400,000, okay? He doesn't have to do that, but if he did, that would be a big answer, okay? If that amount came in. Um, next, that God would bless the sell of this building and the transition into the new one because that could get tricky. 
Okay. By the way, I have mentioned there is a deal that is possibly in the works. Okay. So it's not signed. It's not done. It's possibly going through. And if God answered in this way, it would be all the things we've asked. Okay. So some other specific things we've asked is that we wouldn't have to, you know, go meet somewhere else in the meantime, but we'd be able to go from here to there. The deal in the works would answer all of those things. So please pray. Uh, that that would go through, that God would take of us and it would be a just and good uh, deal. And I've also started praying that we would be able to pay off this loan in five years whenever we finish it off. He doesn't have to do that, uh, but that is what I'm asking and I'm inviting you to pray along with it. Romans chapter 12. Let's look to the scripture. Romans 12. Let's read the first uh, two verses there and then we'll ask for God's help. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Our sovereign and merciful God, God of all glory, the one who is worthy of all worship, we come, we bow ourselves before you in humility, in submission, and we pray, O oh Lord. We ask God that you will show us your glory. I ask God that you will show us that you are the all-glorious one. You are the only one worthy of worship. Show us that you are holy. Show us that you are to be feared and worshiped. Show us that you are the judge of the living and the dead. Show us that you are the merciful Savior who gives incomprehensible grace. And show us that you are the treasure, the one to be pursued. Show us the weight of your glory, we pray, O oh God. And we ask, Lord, that as you do it, you will transform us and bring us to a deeper level of obedience of glad-hearted devotion and service to you, that we would work and wring out our lives in delight because we see that you're worth it. Send your spirit to show the truths of your word. Feed us, O God, we pray. Help me in the preaching and all of us in the reception of your word that you will accomplish these things for the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There were a group of Christians who became known as the Covenanters. This is a group of Christians who lived during the 1600s in Scotland. Um, and so this is a period of time, uh, kind of during and right after the Reformation. Th this is also during that era that the Puritans uh, were alive and ministering, but the Puritans were over in England. These Covenanters were in Scotland. and. A lot of times the Puritans get all of the fanfare and that's, that's a shame because the Covenanters have an awful lot to teach us, um, especially when it comes to devotion to God. Uh, King Charles Stuart, who was King of England, uh, approached Scotland and kind of pitched a proposal to him. He said, if you will come under my dominion, I'll give you what you want. I will make the state church to be 
a reformed church. You know, what they wanted was Presbyterianism. Okay. So he said, I'll give you Presbyterianism. I'll give you a reformed church. So uh, in that day, uh, the Reformation had burned like wildfire there in Scotland. A lot of the great reformers of history came out of Scotland. And so the people, most of the people thought this is going to be amazing. This is going to be great. We'll finally get this reformed church that we want. And so they agreed. And they entered into a solemn covenant between the king and the people. But once the people came under the rule of this wicked king, he seduced them and tricked them. He began to impose changes on the church. So they thought they were getting the reformed church just as soon as, uh, just as soon as this, this happened, he began to impose changes that were high church Romish kinds of things. And the people said, you, you, you can't do that. You, you made an agreement. And King Charles responded, I'm the king. I do what I want. I am the head of the church. This became the great sticking point. This became really uh, the critical point. I am the head of the church. The Bible says, obey your leaders. You do what I say. And so in those days, there was no religious liberty. This, this, this was a foreign concept in those days. Christians have been the ones over and over again who have introduced this to the world and keep teaching the world this concept. There was no religious liberty. To, pre, to, to preach without a license of the government giving their endorsement of the preacher was illegal. This is why John Bunyan went to prison over in England. Okay, John Bunyan was sympathetic with the covenanters. And so what this meant was that the individual official churches were technically bound to follow the king's orders. Now I say technically bound because there's always a choice. Don't ever say, I can't do this thing that would honor God. Don't ever say that you can. It's just that there's a consequence. The individual churches were technically bound to uh, follow these uh, changes that he imposed. But believers who loved the Lord faithfully, who believed the Bible and were unwilling to compromise in matters of sin, they stopped attending the official Scottish church and they began to form fellowships in houses and out in fields. Well, that wicked king began to send soldiers out to arrest and beat these believers who would meet. So soldiers would make raids on houses and make raids on fields and they would uh, severely beat at times. There were many occasions where believers died from the wounds that were afflicted as the soldiers came upon them. Uh, oftentimes they would just simply uh, kill believers on the spot. No questions, no interview, uh, no investigation, no trial, just kill them on the spot. Many times they were arrested. There were a number of times that believers uh, took up arms and defended themselves. We might come back to that in Romans 13, if I can remember to do so. But those who were arrested and brought to trial, if they were condemned, there were an array of sadistically creative punishments that were created to give to these believers that they might receive. Margaret McLaughlin was a 70-year-old widow who was sentenced to die by soldiers holding her under the water and drowning. 
one of the most popular tortures was a device called the boot. The, the boot's pain that it inflicted was so disgusting that oftentimes the very officials who uh, ordered that the person receive it would leave the room while it was being administered because they couldn't stomach it. The boot was an iron contraption that was wrapped around the, the leg and the foot and wedges were driven in by a hammer one blow at a time until the bone was pulverized. They, the believers who were given the boot were oftentimes given this in order uh, to torture them so that they would give up the names of other believers who were meeting in houses and fields. And time after time, there were believers who endured this, this awful and severe torture and yet never gave up a single name. There were occasions when soldiers would um, behead the men that they came across in the fields and then in front of the families, they would make sport of them kicking the heads around to one another. But the sentencing for the men who did the preaching and who led these times of worship was, was the most severe. What would happen is a long and torturous experience was, uh, was planned out and then they would put them through it. And before finally being killed in some awful manner, Andrew Guilin was ordered to have his hands cut off while he was still alive. He was brought before the crowds on the day that was aside. And if I can you know, just take a parenthesis there, crowds would show up to watch these things. By the way, if you want a picture of the world in this present age, Fallen man under the curse. You know, there it is. The world comes out to watch believers be mutilated, to be entertained by it. I have a painting that hangs in my office that my wife bought me, and I sometimes stare at it, and it, and it deeply moves me because it's this image captured of at the Roman Colosseum, there's, there's a group of believers who are huddled around in a circle and they're bowing and they're praying. And behind them, you can see believers crucified and being lit on fire. The gate to the lions has been opened and that first lion is stepping out before he's gonna go tear into pieces. These believers who are there, there's one man who's standing and his eyes are lifted to heaven and his, his mouth is open and he's either praying or he is preaching the gospel to a full crowd of people who had gathered at the Colosseum to watch. You want a picture of this world? Christian, you need to know where you fit in this world. Crowds would come and gather to watch these believers go through this horrendous experience. Andrew Guilin had his right hand uh, cut off there and he raised his stub to the crowd and he said, as my blessed Lord sealed my salvation with his blood, so I am honored this day to seal his truths with my blood. So many of the testimonies of those believers time after time as they addressed the crowds, and by the way, we have their words recorded. You, you can read their final speeches of what they said before and during their torture the consistent theme that you just hear over and over again is these believers would stand before the crowd getting ready to experience just indescribable torture and they would cry out, oh, happy day. Today is my coronation day. 
Today I receive my crown. This evening I will be with my lovely Lord in paradise. And they would plead with the crowds to be saved. They would plead with the crowds, do not fear this suffering. It is light. I am not afraid. He has been with me. Andrew Gwilin had that right hand cut off, spoke to the crowds, and then he offered the hangman his left hand and they cut it off. Himself, David Haxton, and some other believers had the same kind of process. After having their hands cut off, they were then tied around the neck and strung up, but not to kill them, merely for the torture of it. And then before they would die, they would be let back down, allowed to recover. The hangman took a sharp knife and carved open their chest while still alive, removed their still beating heart, impaled it on the end of a knife and walked on the scaffolding to show the crowds. Then it was cast in a fire and then their bodies were desecrated and dismembered. Their parts hung all over the land of Scotland, all over the land of Scotland in these days, as you would walk up to city gates, there would be the heads and limbs of believers that had been impaled there. The king warning the people not to cross him. There are beautiful accounts of children actually going to visit the heads of their fathers and their mothers telling them, your father, he was a courageous man. He died confessing Christ unto death. But let me back up to what would happen before the punishment. D during the investigation, they underwent an interview. And the interview was a series of questions of things like, do you own the authority of the king over the church? If you answered no, then this meant you were condemned. But very often believers were given a chance to save their lives. All they had to do was utter one single phrase, one single sentence, God save the king. Now, as you and I hear that, that probably strikes us to think something like, well, I mean, I think I could say that. I mean, even wicked leaders that I don't like, I want them to be saved. I could pray for that. That's not what this meant. That's not what this meant. This was a statement that meant I recant. This was a statement that, that submitted, I own the authority of the king in all matters, ecclesiastical and otherwise. Okay, so mean, ecclesiastical meaning over the church and over all things. Just one sentence. Make the words come out of your mouth and you don't get the boot. You don't get the thumb screws. You don't get hanged by the neck. You don't get carved open and dismembered one sentence and you get to live. What does it mean to present your body as a sacrifice to God? The covenanters, like a lot of other believers from history, they show us what it is. They give us a picture of what it means to regard your body as not your own to regard your life as no longer belonging to you. They, they preached with their lives and with their blood the meaning of the scripture, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It means to live 
as though your life actually does belong to God. And listen, it's not just a slogan on a t-shirt. It's not just something we say when we meet together in a really comfortable room and it's totally safe and there's no danger and it's real easy to say those things. They showed us what it means to give your life as a sacrifice. And we've seen uh, our text in Romans issue this call to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy sacrifice. And now we come to this next subpoint in our outline. We're told that as we do this, this is our true worship. This is our true worship. In other words, this will be the greatest worship that we ever offer up to God. It is not only that we worship God in a moment, but that it is we make our very lives, our lifestyle, an offering of worship. So let's consider letter C. If you look at the text with me again and, and read verse one, I'll point out the part we're considering here. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And then here, here's the two phrases that we're considering acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, some of your other uh, translations may read a little bit differently there of, of either holy and acceptable, something like that. It means the exact same thing. What we're being shown is that this is the great worship that you will offer up to God. It is the very giving of your life. This is the true worship. Now, there is an unspoken and implied truth here with it as well. The, the Bible often does this, that implied with a text, there's something else being said here. You got to be careful not to just insert words in the Bible, but there, there's an unspoken part here that from other passages we come to understand. Lay down, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and this will be pleasing to God. This is your service of worship. And, and then here's the part that is unspoken. And this is the point. This is why you are here. This is why you exist. You, you exist to glorify God. You, you were made in order to please him. You exist for worship. Another way of saying, okay, there are lots of ways the Bible tells you the point. Another way of saying the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever is to say you exist for worship. This will please God and this is why you exist. If I could, you know, summarize the meaning of the text in just 20 seconds, it would be Christian do you believe the gospel? Are you thankful that you're not going to burn for eternity? Do you see that the meaning of your life is to worship? Then do this. Present your body as a living sacrifice and a holy sacrifice. So there are two phrases that we need to meditate on. Here's the first one. He says that this is acceptable to God. Uh, this word could also be translated as well-pleasing. Either one of those is a, is a good and helpful translation. To count your life as a sacrifice to God, to devote yourself to holiness as unto God, this is acceptable 
worship. This is worship that is well pleasing to God. Now let me spend a little bit of time on this concept of acceptable worship and that'll help us see some more of the significance of this text here. Remember the account of Cain and Abel. In the account of Cain and Abel, you had two brothers who both presented offerings to God. But God accepted Abel's offering. He had regard for it. But you remember what happened to Cain's. He rejected it. The Lord did not accept it. It was not pleasing in his sight. And then, of course, you remember what happened after that. But we learn in only the fourth chapter of the Bible. I mean, you are early in the book of Genesis, God progressively revealing truth. You're only four chapters into the Bible and already we're taught the principle that there is worship that God accepts and is pleased with. And then there are kinds of worship that he rejects, that he refuses. You're only four chapters into the message to mankind and God is teaching you about true worship and false worship. There is worship that God accepts and worship that God rejects. Humans don't like that. People don't like that. People like to imagine that God is just happy with whatever spirituality you choose. We, we've all heard the world say, you know, all that kind of nonsense of, you know, it doesn't matter what church you go to, doesn't matter what religion you adhere to, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter, you don't want to go to the, go to the woods, lay on the ground, whatever. Okay, you just do, you do you, whatever. God's just happy with all. People want to imagine that pe all people are good and therefore God's just thankful that you throw him whatever bone you decide to toss his way but it's a pretty big principle of the Bible that God speaks and he tells us that he is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory, okay? Jealous for his glory in the righteous way and he is particular. He is particular in a right kind of way about what he wants and about what he will reject. We don't get to make up however we want to worship. We don't just get to do whatever we want and think that God's supposed to be happy with it. God tells us how he is to be worshiped. He tells us what pleases him. In the 10 commandments, one of the principles that becomes apparent um, is that God gives commands concerning how he is to be worshiped and a lot of examples of how he is not to be worshiped, okay? So um, to back up a little bit there, to tell you a little bit more about the 10 commandments, this, this, this will be helpful. In every one of the 10 commandments, it, it, there are at least these three things happening in every one of the commandments, okay? There is instruction about God and the world he made. There is a prohibition, meaning you shall not do this something. And then there is an imperative, an order, a you shall do this. That's happening in every one of the commandments. Okay, so take the fifth one. You shall honor your father and your mother. Okay, there is information about God and the world he made that's happening there. There's the obvious imperative. He says, you shall do this thing, but you can go further than just the honor because that preaches many other things, but there's also a prohibition. Okay. If there's an imperative preached, there's also a prohibition preached. You shall not strike your father. You shall not curse your mother, etc. Right. So all of that is happening. Every one of the commandments, consider the second commandment with me. The second commandment is you shall not make any graven images of any idols or of the Lord, your God. 
So no images of idols, but also no images of God. And so one of the things that God is teaching there is it is possible to attempt to worship in a way uh, that breaks with what he says. And you even have the right God, but going about it in a way that he forbids. And it is worship that he rejects. When Cain offered up his offering, he didn't offer it to Baal. He offered it to the true God, but it was still rejected. People don't like that. But this is a principle of the Bible. God is jealous for his glory and he's particular. We are forbidden from worshiping the Lord however we see fit. God determines how he is to be worshiped. God determines what pleases him. Imagine a couple who decided to build a house and so they they spent months agonizing over plans. They hired a contractor, they gave the plans and then the contractor took that and he began to start. The contractor, he began to build but he began to just do whatever he wanted. He paid no attention to the plans. He was just building what he wanted. Now, he thought what he was building was just really something. Actually, it was just a glorified doghouse. And some of the workers with him saw what was happening. They're like, well, you know, what, what are you doing? This is nothing like the plans that they showed us. And he said all those things that people sometimes say about God. It's all the same. I'm using lumber, aren't I? I'm swinging a hammer. It's got a roof. What do you mean I'm not doing what they said? We know that doesn't fly. But for some reason, when it comes to God, a lot of times people think that God should just be happy with whatever they decide to do. But friends, that is misunderstanding existence. You and I are not the ones who define reality. God is. Angels fall before him. The host of heaven tremble in his presence before the weight of his holiness. You breathe because God grants you life. You live because God imparts life, breath and life that he does not have to give. You are not in the seat of power. You are not the decider of reality. You don't give God an interview to decide whether or not you're gonna do him the favor of, of throwing a little worship his way. He's the judge of the living and the dead. You stand before him as the one who is being judged. You deserve eternity of wrath. We all deserve to spend eternity in the flames of hell. You are completely at his mercy. You don't get to tell God how he is to be worshiped. We don't get to determine what pleases him. For worship to be acceptable, well-pleasing to God, it has to meet certain criteria and he's the one who sets the criteria. A lot of times people get confused about worship. This goes for Christians. This goes for well-meaning Christians at times. Sometimes people get confused about worship and they think worship is whatever makes me feel invigorated. Worship is whatever makes me feel spiritual, makes me feel fulfilled or get my, you know, my batteries recharged or all those other things. Now, don't misunderstand. It is an element of worship that you should be stirred to affection for God. 
that glorifies him. Okay. We should be stirred to gratitude. There should be some of the, yeah, yeah, warm fuzzies that happen at times. That's affection for God. Affection for God is a good thing, but we can't get the order wrong. There are times that we will glorify, worship, and please God, and it's not going to be fun. When Adoniram Judson was hung upside down to spend his nights during that season that he was being tortured, that was worship. He didn't feel the warm and fuzzies. Okay. So we got, we can't get the order wrong. Worship is about exalting God. Worship is about regarding him as worthy of praise and all adoration. The only one worthy of worship. And so we lift up this praise because we count him as as holy and worthy and glorious. Worship is about what pleases God. He gets to set the criteria. And so what the text is saying is this, to bring it back to Romans 12. Here is worship that he finds pleasing. Here is worship that is altogether acceptable to God. It is to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Live unto God, live holy, and you will please him. This is acceptable. And then notice the next phrase here, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, there's a bit of wrestling by the translators over the word spiritual and, and what is the best English word to choose there. I, I won't get into it a lot. You can read some more on that if you want to, but regardless from the context, we know what is being preached. We know what is being preached. This is your worship. This is your great worship. This is your truest worship. Um, what is being preached is the only acceptable response to God, the only logical response to God, the only reasonable response to God is a response that lays down and surrenders everything to him because anything less would be illogical. See, I told you there's some wrestling over the word that's there. The word there for spiritual in the Greek is actually logikos. And oftentimes it's actually translated as logical um, in Greek outside of the Bible. And so the way that some interpret this verse is to say this, in light of the mercies of God, okay, which is what is in consideration, in light of who he is, in light of the mercies of God and what he has done for us, we who were marching to hell and whistling while we did it, and yet he sent his son. Jesus went to the cross. We, we, we were closing our eyes to his glory, spitting on his law, and he came after us. All that he did to bring about your salvation, the, 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 the amazing way that he worked to give grace. There's only one right kind of response here. It's a response that lays down everything. Anything else, anything less would be unreasonable. So um, imagine you had a child who was kidnapped. Child was kidnapped, vanished. You were worried, sick, praying and praying. You had no idea what happened. 
but, but you hired someone who went after your child. It took them a long, grueling battle. They got shot three times in the process of, of saving your child and then brought them back to you. You're grateful. How do you express gratitude? Well, in one sense, you could say, well, I mean, there's nothing I could say that would adequately express the gratitude that I have. This is true, but there are some ways that would be illogical and unreasonable. Uh, thanks, we'll send you a, a gas gift card for your labors, okay? What, what it, it doesn't measure up because it's incredibly ungrateful. It doesn't match the kind of gratitude that ought to be there. Christian, consider your savior who bled. Consider the God who did not spare his own son. Consider the one who pursued you when you were spitting on his law. We cannot adequately express the gratitude that he's worthy of, but there is a kind of response that is the only logical and reasonable kind of response, and it is to surrender your entire life. Half-hearted devotion is disgraceful. Table scraps are disgraceful to the God who did what he has done to save your soul from hell. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea? He said, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. They were lukewarm in their obedience. They were lukewarm in their devotion. They were lukewarm in the energy they put into knowing God. You're lukewarm. He said, you need to repent. And if you do not, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Christian, there's only one kind of devotion to God that is fitting for what he has done. I want, I want to ask you an application question at, at this point for, for you to ask. Is the response that you are currently giving to God at this stage in your life, is it appropriate for the one who has done what he has done? Are you giving to God table scraps of your energy, your time, your effort, your service? And then here's the next part to this. What is also being preached here is a principle that we, we might call life worship. That's why I gave it the title that I did for the sermon here, life worship. I, I don't mean the worship of life. What I mean is a lifestyle of worship. And, and this is what is being taught um, that is kind of the surprising moment here. We all know that obedience to God is good, Okay, you, you say no to the flesh and you obey a commandment. We all know that that's obedience. We all know that that is good. What the text is teaching us is that it is more than that. It is worship. And there is a way to live a lifestyle where we are making our lives to be an offering of worship continuously day by day. Worship becomes the way that you live because day by day you're giving to God obedience and submission. You're doing all things to glorify him because it is originating from worship internally. You count God as worthy. It's a 1 Corinthians 10, 31 kind of life. Remember that verse? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's a Colossians 3, 17 kind of life. 
whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to the father. There is a way to glorify God in everything that you do. There is a way to glorify God while you sweep the floor. There is a way to glorify God on your drive to work. Okay. We could come up with a list of numerous ways that you could act that out, that you could behave that glorifies God, that actually worships him on your way to work. You might use the time to pray. You might use the time to listen to a sermon or reflect on some scripture you read or, or one that needs to be kept in mind for all of these things. Martin Luther used to talk a lot about living Coram Deo before the face of God. And what it means is to live in such a way that you're always thinking about God. He is always on your mind. You are conscious of God in everything that you do. And, and you can be uh, obeying Colossians when it says to always have a hymn being sung in your heart, uh, to always have thoughts of God, to always keep a spirit of gratitude and to verbalize that gratitude, to always be thinking of how everything is from God, through God and to God. You can glorify God while you do your job by Living Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Okay. It, you, you have a job for, for those who apply to you. Okay. You have a job, do your work as unto the Lord. You maybe not care for your supervisor, your boss all that much. Okay. Work for Jesus. Do you love your supervisor or your boss? Work for Jesus. Okay. Because it's greater than just a paycheck. It's bigger than pleasing men. You, you work as unto the Lord. Christians are to approach life in such a way that we do what we do with excellence. Okay, Christians should be the best employees at any company. Okay, work heartily as unto the Lord. Glorify God in what you do. Remember him. You can glorify God on your lunch break. You can glorify God when you come home and you're with your family. There's a lot of things you could do. Family worship would be towards the top of that list, but also in conversation and laughing with your children and, and playing games and wrestling on the floor with your toddler. Glorify God in what you do. You can glorify God on a, on a date with your wife. Imitate Song of Solomon. You can glorify God whenever you are uh, resting on vacation, when you're sitting in a recliner and resting after a long day, basking in the, the grace of God to give you rest. We can worship in everything that we do by living before the face of God. He is with you everywhere you are and everything that you do. Okay, now you do also need to hear this part. Just because an activity can be done for the glory of God doesn't automatically mean that everything is done for the glory of God, okay? You, you, you can fail to glorify God when you come to church, okay? We can obviously fail to glorify God uh, when we engage in all these practices, you know? So don't just, you know, sit in front of the TV five nights a week with buttered potato chips and say, it's for the glory of God, okay? No, there's some criteria that's got to be there. It's got to be matched, okay? And then we can't go through all the criteria, but the Bible says things like it must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It must be done in faith. And I think that partly that is referring to the consciousness that I am doing this for the glory of God. The, the way we engage in the activity must be done in a way that pleases God. We can glorify him in every dimension live unto God. 
But the text is also addressing more than just making each activity of our life glorify him. The text is also preaching the daily dying to sin and living that battle day in, day out, saying no to the flesh and choosing obedience. That is making an offering unto God. It is an act of worship. When we think worship God, we oftentimes think sing, sit under preaching, teaching and heed it and obey it and believe it. Take the Lord's supper. All of that is true. Do those things, Christians. But what the Bible is also showing us is that day by day, as we live obedience, you're making more than moments to be worshiped. You're making your life an offering of worship. So it's Tuesday evening. You've had a long, tiresome day. You just want to sit and not be bothered and rest. But you have a child who's struggling with some homework. Child starts to get a little bit of an attitude. You can feel a little bit of that irritability and grumpiness starting to set in and different people then express that in different ways. Maybe your temptation is just to go in another room and everybody just leave me alone. I don't just be my myself kind of thing. But you think, I want to do this with excellence. I want to raise my children with excellence because you count God as worthy. I want to glorify God with my life. And so you, you breathe, you gather your patience, you sit down, you help your child with your homework. What happened there? You said no to your flesh. That's not easy. Everything inside of you wanted to give vent to your irritability and just obey your flesh in laziness or whatever. What, why did you say no? Because you count God as worthy. And what the scripture is showing is that is an act of obedience, but it is also an act of worship because of what it came from. If it comes from worship internally, regarding God as worthy, then it is worship. You sing a song, you verbalize the words, crown him Lord of all, and it comes from internally, I count him as worthy, and you verbalize it, that's worship. Same thing when we die to the flesh and obey God. Christian, dying to your sin will be amongst the hardest things you do in your entire life. This is a big way that we worship. I've said this before. I'll repeat it again. If you think the Christian life is easy, you gravely misunderstand it and you misunderstand the expectations. Your life is supposed to be hard. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean that you're guaranteed to be filled with a bunch of circumstances that cause heartache. Maybe yes, maybe no. But your life has to be hard as a Christian because dying to sin is hard. Saying no to self-pity is hard. Saying no to pride, saying no to all of these temptations, it's hard, but you do it because he's worthy. You do it because you want to please him. And this is the point. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worth dying for. And he is worth living for. Christian, if he calls you to die for the gospel, then die like a covenanter. Do it magnificently. But if you aren't put in that situation, 
live unto him. Live for his glory. When I consider the covenanters, you know, one, I feel embarrassed about the ridiculousness of my weaknesses. But two, if I'm being honest, I often get worried about the church in our land. Did you know that in the summertime, if it's going to be just a gorgeous day, we can pretty accurately predict that attendance is going to be lower that Sunday? Did you know that when it rains, we can usually pretty accurately predict there's going to be lower attendance that day? I mean, we meet indoors. It's a heated building. Got these cushioned chairs provided for children. There's coffee back there. We have bathrooms. Covenanters didn't have bathrooms in the winter when they met in the fields. And yet, if it rains, there'll be lower attendance. I'm not aware of anybody who comes to church by horseback. We drive cars to get here. And yet on a rainy day, there will be lower attendance. I'm not preaching just that one thing. I'm meaning that to extend wider to a bigger metaphor for the way we approach every part of our life. Christian, do you believe the gospel? Are you thankful to God? You're not going to burn in hell. Your Savior has given you the kingdom of heaven. Are you thankful for that? Okay, let's, let's express gratitude by doing the only logical and reasonable response. Let's live a life of holiness and obedience. Let's die to sin. Let's die to sin. Tomorrow, you're going to be faced with temptation. Let's die to it. Tomorrow, we're going to have opportunities for good works. Let's walk in them. This week, you're going to have opportunities to share the gospel. Let's take the opportunity. This week, you can implement a different kind of culture in your household by revolving all things around the glory of God, implementing family worship, rising early and meeting with the Lord. Let's, Let's do those things. Let's put them in our life. He's worth it. Let's live a life that is well pleasing to him. And if you've never turned to Christ to be saved, one of the things that you do need to know is that thus far in your life, we don't say this to be mean, but I am, I do have to be truthful with you. Thus far in your life, you have never pleased God one day. I I know that's not what the world tells you. I know that's not the message that's constantly preached to you, but it is true. God says it in the Bible, apart from true faith, Placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews says, if you have not yet turned to him to be saved, you've never pleased him before. Isn't there something in you that longs to be pleasing to him? Listen to me. Believe. I plead with you. Place your faith in Christ. Pray and tell him you want to be saved. Tell him that you believe and trust in him. He's a merciful Savior who will save you the instant that you truly turn to Him. Cry out to Him and pray to be saved. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, there's nothing I would rather do. Come find me. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we collectively confess to you, we want to please you. Nothing else matters. It's all going to burn. We say, let it burn. Let it burn. The only thing we care about is pleasing you. 
We want to hear at the end, you saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're longing for. Help us to live in a way that produces that, we pray. Help us, God. So we're going to dismiss here, bless our fellowship, and bless us as we go home to honor you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.